0: Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here in your presence and lift these prayers up to you, Lord, I pray that you would meet the needs of the people as they pour out their hearts to you. That, Lord, you would deal with their, their lives, their issues, their problems. And Father, I pray that you would draw our hearts together in unity and oneness as we come before you. Now, as we look into your word, I pray that you would open that up for us, that we might be challenged by what we see, and that when we leave here today, we will have been changed. For having been in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, why don't y'all be seated? <clears throat> Noah, you did a good job, boy. All right, I'm proud of you. If you were to hear somebody say that I've been called to ministry, what would you think? What would your mind, what would be the image in your mind? I would venture to say that probably you would um, envision somebody being called to the pastorate, somebody being called into the missionary field, somebody being called to be an evangelist, to do crusades. Those are the typical things that we think of when we hear somebody talk about being called into ministry. But now, do you ever wonder why it is that God seemingly doesn't call you? Doesn't seem that God's called you into ministry. Doesn't seem that God's called you to a foreign field or a pastorate or something of that nature. So we conclude then God just doesn't care about me or God isn't interested in me. But what if I told you that every believer, no matter who you are, has been called to ministry. Every one of us, we've been called by God to ministry. Each one of us has been set apart. We've been called to serve. And many of it, well, not many, all of us. Have been called before we were even born. Think about that. We were called before the earth was ever created, according to the scriptures. This is taught throughout the Bible. We've been we are given example after example of that. Today we're going to look at one of those examples. We're going to be looking at the life of Samson. We've been studying the book of Judges. We come down to this probably the last um judge that we're going to be talking about in the book of Judges, and that is Samson. For the next few weeks, we'll be looking at this man and his life. This was a special man, called by God to do a special job. We've been looking at that uh, for weeks now. He was set apart for ministry, uh, just like you and I, and we're going to talk about that. But in the end, it was a very sad story. A sad story, because he started out strong, but then he failed in the end. I can remember as a small boy, I mean just a little guy. My mother had this Bible book, storybook. It was full of colored pictures. And she would at nighttime read me Bible stories. And she read me the story of Samson. And, you know, you envision this man that, you know, he's this great warrior and fighter and uh, serving the Lord and doing all these things. And then in the end, this story takes a turn for the worse. I can remember sitting there crying. As a little guy, because, you know, he was my hero. He was a guy that you just got into, and then to hear what happened to him and how he died. But yet there's many lessons for us in this, and we'll study this for the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at some of those lessons. Today I want to jump right into the text, okay? It's not, uh, not very long, but let me jump into it. It's in Judges chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 we're going to jump down to 24. Let me begin. It says, "After, I'm sorry, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Uh, it's the same song we've been looking at time after time. The Jews, the Israelites, now this takes place over a period of about 400 years, the book of Judges. They, Time after time, fall into sin. God sends in somebody to take them and, and suppress them and, enslave them, and then they cry out to God, and God delivers them. He sends a judge to do that. This is, again, the same story, only this time they're in bondage for 40 years. This is one of the more lengthy times that they've been in bondage or being oppressed by an enemy. It says in verse 2, A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb." He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And then down in verse 24, it says, The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him. Now, let's look at this for a few minutes. Here's a woman who was approached by the Lord himself, the angel of the Lord, to tell her that even though she's barren, she's going to have a child. A unique situation. Because we've studied in in the past this Nazarite vow, and the Nazarite vow is a vow that somebody takes voluntarily in most cases. And they are committing themselves for a period of time that they're going to do something that they've told God they're going to do, and then there are certain requirements that they have to adhere to during that time. When the vow was complete, then they are no longer under any obligation to follow those requirements. Those requirements, for at least for Samson, and this is what you'll find out later on as you study his life, is that, number one, he, like it says here, will not ever have his hair cut. Number two, he is never to partake of wine. Now, it's not just wine. The Bible says that he is never to eat of the vine. That means that he can't have raisins. He can't have grapes. He can't have juice from the berries. He can't have wine. He can't have anything from the vine. And he's to eat only clean animals, and he's never to touch a dead body. Now, the clean animals, as you know, are requirements in the the law of Moses. Certain animals they could eat, and certain ones they couldn't. Now, here's the problem as you think about the situation that God has put him under. And that is that Samson never had a choice. Samson never had a choice. This is a Nazarite vow, but it has begun in the womb. His mother is even told, you can't do these things as long as he's in the womb. Because this is a a situation where God has called him from the womb to do a certain task for him. Now, there was another situation in the Bible where a similar situation to this, and that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was another who was under a Nazarite vow from birth his entire life. Now, why these instructions or restrictions? Why is it that he couldn't have his hair cut, eat of the vine, and so forth? And you know what? I don't know that anybody has a definitive answer on this, but I have a, a, an idea, Okay. I think that the reason for the Nazarite vow restrictions are that you are simply constantly being reminded of your vow. In other words, you sit down to eat and everyone drank wine, everyone ate raisin cakes, everyone ate grapes. It was part of life. It's hard to get around in the land of Israel or the Middle East at all and not ever partake of a grape in some form or fashion. And every time he would sit down for a meal, he's reminded once again that you're different. You're different. You, you, you've got, you're under a vow to God, and you have to adhere to this and, and do what God has called you to do. His hair. Every time he looked at a reflection of himself in water or mirror or whatever they were able to use at that time to see a reflection, he would see a hairy man who was never allowed to, to shave or to cut his hair. And he's reminded again, you're special. You are under the call of God. Your life is set apart. You're different. And so I believe this is the reason why this took place. Now, as you move from Samson to others mentioned in the Bible, this is not unique, this idea of being set apart or called out. For example, Jeremiah was called out too. He was set apart. Um, Listen to what God says concerning Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse 5. He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, what is he saying? He says, look, when you were in the womb, Jeremiah, I called you. I knew who you were. I knew exactly every detail about you. And I called you to this mission. You're going to be a prophet to the entire world. You know, if you are ever in a situation where you are arguing with somebody about the right to an abortion, use this verse, okay? Don't tell me that it's a fetus and that it doesn't matter or that it doesn't become a person until it's born because God says, I knew you in the womb and I knit you together there. And this is what took place with Jeremiah. He was called from the womb Set apart for a particular task. Now, Paul, the apostle, makes this statement in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He says this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul understood very clearly that he was set apart as well. And all through the Bible, you're going to find that the people... That God is calling to to do a particular ministry or to be involved in servanthood. God always calls them and sets them apart to the task. And it does not end with them because the same exact thing is true of you and me as well. And see, this is where we as Christians don't always understand this. Because in our minds, we've got this image. We've got an image of a person that is called by God to ministry as being, like I said, a pastor. You know, you've got the call. You've got the call to go to the mission field. You've got the call to be an evangelist and do great crusades like Billy Graham. Great, I understand that. There is a call on their life. They are set apart to do ministry. And so are you. You're no different. Now, the job may be different. The task, of course, is different. But nonetheless, you are in the same shape as they are, the same under the same call. Now, let me show you something, because in 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with this situation. He deals with the idea of, here we are with the church, and it's not just the local church, but it's all Christians in general throughout the world, but it's referred to as the church, and he says that all of us, are of one body, believers, and all of us have our different callings, you see. All of us have been set apart to do different things. Now, let me read you this. We're going to pick it apart, okay? But it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, looking at verses 4 through 6, then we're going to jump down and look at some others. Let me read you these couple of verses, then we'll pick it apart. He says, There are different kinds of gifts. But the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. I want you to notice the three things that he says that are different. Every one of us, as individuals in the body of Christ, we all have different gifts, first of all. And that's true. Some of us have the gift of helps, some of us have the gift of teaching, some of us have gifts of of prophecy or whatever, Uh, the gifts that are mentioned in the Bible. But regardless of your gift, there are different ways in which you apply those within the kingdom. And this is what he means by this statement. He says there are different kinds of gifts. There's only one spirit. He said there are different kinds of service. Oh. Now watch this, okay? You may have the gift of teaching, for example, and you find yourself teaching with the children's ministry. You may have the gift of teaching, same gift, but be teaching to adults. You see the same gift but different areas of service and different as the Bible, as he continues here, different kinds of working the way you do the job, the way you approach that job. You can take two teachers, for example, both teaching an adult Sunday school class, and their approach is different, the way they work it, the way they do it, the way they teach. It's all different. Same thing with pastors and so on. You can do that with every single gift. You may have the gift of helps, and you're, you're committed and, and passionate about helping people. But what you do in the area of service that you're ministering in may be totally different than someone else who has that same gift. So you see, even within the gifts, there are different applications of that same gift. Now, you've got to understand this, okay? And this is what I want you to understand, is that every one of us, regardless of what it is and how we are gifted, how we are motivated, how we, what our passion may be, Whatever that may be, God has set you apart for ministry. And he did it before you were ever born. God knew you, the Bible tells us. Called you by name. Saved your soul. And has given you responsibility. That each one of us has a job to do that God has specifically set us apart to do. Let me read you the last couple of verses here in that passage. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verses 18 through 20. It says, But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, the body of Christ or the church, every one of them just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. See, not everybody in the body of Christ is a preacher. Thank God. Not everybody is a foreign missionary. Not everybody is called to be an evangelist leading crusades or whatever. Whatever your image of being called may be, God says no. You're all different. But you're no less set apart than somebody who you may see like a Billy Graham who's always in the public eye. See, being called by God is, and set apart by God is not something that is reserved for a select few. It's something that takes place within the body of Christ for all of us. Peter jumps into this discussion in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Here's what he says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that word holy means set apart. You are a set apart nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Now watch the verse. Look at it, okay? He says you're a chosen people. He's talking about Christians. A chosen people, a royal priesthood. Do you know that that every believer in Christ is a priest? This is taught in Scripture, the priesthood of the believer. We've talked about this before. Why in the world would God call you or refer to you or say that you are a priest? Why? What does that mean? Well, it means this. A priest had a very specific job. His job was to be the intermediary between humans, man, and God. He would go into the temple and perform the sacrifices on behalf of the people. You, as a believer in Christ, are the intermediary between God and other people. Noah went to prison this week, along with some other people in our church, and they became the intermediary between lost people and God. They served as a priest. We are a kingdom of priests, the Bible tells us. Called out, set apart, given a responsibility... To take the message, now watch this, because it's in this verse here, in 1 Peter 2, 9. It says, let me read it, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, now here's the job, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. That's the job. God set me apart. God made me a special nation or a part of the nation, a part of the priesthood, so that I could declare his praises to people that need to hear. That's what you've been called to. And there'll be times when we give the examples, and when times when we stand up and we proclaim the truth, there'll be times when we stand for the truth. There'll be times when we just come alongside people and help them, minister to them, but the job, the responsibility is the same. Whether you are an automobile mechanic, a lawyer, a, a uh, doctor, a farmer, a nurse, go on and on with every possible vocation that could be represented in a church like this, regardless of who you are and what you are doing, the assignment is all the same. you and I proclaim and declare the praises of God to a people that don't understand. And we do that in various ways. See, it's not all preaching. It's not all by word of mouth. God calls you and me to minister to people. Let me give you some examples. When I say that you have been set apart and called out for a particular job, and not just one job, I think that it's numerous things that God has called you to. Examples would be this, something like this, Okay? Maybe for you, God has called you and given you a passion to help feed and clothe needy people. That's your passion. That lights your fire more than anything else. That's what you really enjoy doing. That would be something that you've been called to do. Maybe for you, this, God has given you a passion to somehow be over or a part of a shelter for abused women. Maybe God has called you to be a one-on-one mentor with pregnant teens. Maybe God has called you and empowered you to go on short-term short-term missions trips. You have a vocation, you have a job, you have a way of making money and supporting your family, but your passion is every chance you get to go on mission trips just to help, to lend a hand, Uh, maybe to make people aware of what the needs are. Maybe for you, your passion has become to volunteer with special needs children. Maybe for you, what God has called you to do is that you do a summer backyard Bible club with children in your community. Maybe you do it every summer because you have a heart for those kids. You bring in neighborhood kids and you feed them and you have games and you have like a VBS in your backyard. Wow, what a calling. What a calling. Maybe for you, God has called you to minister to older people who are in the declining years of their lives in a nursing home. And maybe what you do is you go in and love on them and read to them and tell them about Jesus and read the Bible for them if they need to and have maybe classes on sewing and art and music. Just because you have a heart for them, and that's what God has called you to do. Maybe at your work you have a prayer group that you've put together and you and some of the other people at work get together to pray and help support and encourage one another. Maybe you have a college-age support group or Bible study where you minister and deal with the questions and the problems that college-age people are dealing with today. Questions on evolution and creation. You know, they're being taught one thing and coming to church and hearing something else. Sexual identity. Marriage, abortion, all the things that young people are having to deal with. Maybe God says, this is where I want you. This is what I have envisioned for you. And this is where you minister. A divorce support group, a prison prison ministry, drug addiction, the list goes on and on. You see, we get into this trap of trying to pigeonhole what ministry looks like. And we can't. Because God has made us all different. And he's gifted us all differently. And he's called us and set us apart in different ways. But the message is still the same. That never changes. And God has called you and me to go out into the people, the circle of friends I've told you about before, that we have influence with, and minister to them in such a way, with the end goal in mind, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. One way or another, you plant the seeds, you do the job, and you, my friend, are no less called and set apart than anyone else. Why should I be concerned about my calling? Why should I be concerned about this thing that God has called me to? This ministry that maybe God has gifted me for. Why should I be concerned about that? Well, let me very quickly give you three reasons, okay? Number one, you need to be concerned about it because that's how you're going to reach your full potential. That's where you're gifted. That's where God has made you the very best that you can be. And this is where you're going to find the most fulfillment, but also the most fruit, and you live up to your full potential by discovering what it is that God has called you to do. Here's the second reason why you need to be concerned about it, and that is so that you can fulfill God's will for you. You've got to fulfill God's will for you. See, get out of this mindset that ministry is something over here, and then my vocation and my life is over here. Whatever your vocation is, it is your ministry. And you fulfill God's will for you by being the person God has called you to be. You've just got to be convinced that you're set apart for this. So that means that whatever you do, that is your ministry. And you're set apart for that. Here's the third the third reason why you need to be concerned with this. And that is because this is how you do your part to change the world. You're part of a process of changing this society we live in. Now, that sounds like a big, bold goal. I know, everybody talks about changing the world, but you've got to begin by changing the world where you are. You know, your world, your community, your friends, your family. So you begin by changing them. And the, the way that I do that is by finding where God has gifted me, where God has called me, And I minister there. I do the job there in those areas, understanding that I am just as called as Samson, just as called as the Apostle Paul, just called to different areas and workings within the body of Christ. Now let me make a statement, okay? I'm going to write this down. You will not be remembered for your righteousness. You will not be remembered for your righteousness, but you will be remembered for the lives you touched. Okay? Now let me explain that. I've never been to a funeral where anybody stood up to talk about the deceased that said, you know what, my grandfather or whatever, he was a righteous man. He went to church every Sunday. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He didn't run around with women. He was faithful to Grandma. He did this. I've never really heard anybody stand up and and praise somebody for all the things they didn't do. But time after time, I have heard people stand up and praise people because that person touched me. That person helped me when I was in need and nobody else knew about it. That person gave me money when I was in need and nobody knew about that. That person was there for me when my marriage was falling apart. And nobody knew about it. But I want to stand up here today and I want to tell you what they did for me. That's, see, that's what people remember. There's a story in the book of Acts. There's a woman who passes away in the book of Acts, and the people there send for Peter. They're hoping that Peter will raise her from the dead because they've seen him do it before. So Peter comes in. Peter's not familiar with the situation, so he's asking, well, what's the deal here, you know? This is modern-day translation. What's the deal here? So they take him to the room where this lady, Tabitha, is laid out on the bed. And they're not talking about what a righteous person she is. You know what they're doing? They're holding up clothes. And they're saying to Peter, look at what she did for me. Now, clothes in this day and age that way of the Bible times was an expensive commodity. It had to be grown um, spun, woven, cut, sewn, every it was a hard task. And this lady had made all these robes and clothes for these people that were in need. And there they are standing around her bed and they're holding up their clothes and saying, look what she did, Peter. Look what she did. Look at how important she is to us. Look how she ministered to us. This is what God set her apart for. This is what God called her to. And look how faithful she was. The Bible goes on to say Peter raised her up from the dead. And the people were ecstatic because she meant so much to them. You never know. You never know. The little things that you think are insignificant, the things that you think don't matter, the things that you say, well, I wish God would call me to ministry. God's already called you. You just can't see it. And those things matter so much. They're so important. Here's the point of this whole sermon. If I had to boil it down to one challenge for you, it's this. You can do anything God calls you to do. Do you understand that? You can do anything that God calls you to do. You've been set apart. Now, here's the the question, though. How do you get started? (coughs) How do I do this? Let me close by giving you quickly three things that I want you to remember. I want you to walk out of here with these in mind. If I am... If I'm going to get started to answer the call on my life, if I'm going to find my niche in this world, then I've got to at least begin with these three things, okay? Number one is this. You have to first of all be convinced that you have been set apart for this. You've got to believe it. And therein lies the biggest obstacle. The biggest obstacle to us as Christians is to believe the importance and the value of what we have to bring to the body of Christ. This is why I don't get involved, you say. That's, that's nothing. That's no big deal. And you've got to begin to see this is a call of God on your life. That you have been set apart before you were created. God had you in mind and set you apart for this task. If you're not convinced of that, then it ends right there for you. You will not go any further. Secondly is this. Then you start praying. Then you start praying. And here's the things you need to be praying for. You need to be praying for things like this. God, I'm convinced. I see it in the scripture. You've called me. You've set me apart. Now, Lord, show me where. Show me the people to whom I'm supposed to minister. Show me the people that maybe nobody else is going to be able to reach, but you've called me to do it. Show me where they are. Lord, let me feel in my spirit what it is that you're wanting me to do. I want to be convinced. I want to see it. I want to to see it as clearly as I can what it is that you want. Lord, I, I want you to give me open doors. I want, you, I want to be able to look at this and say, ah, this must be what God meant. This must be what God wants me to do. Give me ideas. Lord, put thoughts into my mind about what I could do where I am and what I have to work with. But then the third thing is this, that you step out and go. You step out and go. You got to move, folks. You got to get going. The open door is right there. God's opened it. God said, This is where you minister. This is something you can do. And you know in your heart that it is real because you feel a sense of satisfaction. If I could do that, I would be satisfied. God said, Then do it. But Lord, what if I fail? Well, you know what? You probably will. But that's what Christian growth is all about. See, it's trial and error. Paul understood that well. You do things, they don't work. You do something else. Trial and error. You move from the general to the specific. God, I feel called to minister in this field or area or whatever. And God narrows it down to where it becomes crystal clear for you eventually. But if you never move, you never see it. You never see it. So guys, yeah, you can do anything that God calls you to do. You have to believe that, though. God has set you apart. And God has called you. It's up to you to figure out what that is, because I cannot tell you what that is. Only you know that. If you're here this morning and you do not understand that Jesus loves you and that he died for you, let me read you this one last verse and then we'll close, okay? Here's the verse. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what it says. Let me read it. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, let me pick it apart for you for a minute, okay? God the Father made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin. God basically said to Christ, you're going to go down and you're going to become them. You're going to become sin. Everything they've done, I'm putting on you. And you're going to die for it and make the payment. And when they put their faith in you, then here's what's going to happen. So that in Him, that means when you put your faith in Christ, you become a part of the body. You're in Him. So that in Him, now watch, we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. This is called in theological terms imputed righteousness. It doesn't mean that you are righteous. It means that God is righteous. God has a standard by which you have to meet to get into heaven. And God said, you can't do it. So what I'll do is this. I'll take your sin, put it on my son as a sacrifice. He'll take your place. And then when you put your faith in him, I will give you basically crediting to your account my righteousness. You know what that means? That means when God looks at your Filthy life, God says you're as righteous as Jesus Christ. But Lord, I'm not. God says, I know, but I've declared you to be that. Because you see, the substitution took place. I gave you his righteousness and took your sin and put it on him. You see, when you first come to understand that, understand the gospel, understand the truth of it, what it's all about. How could you not get excited? How could you not want to declare that to everybody you see? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. If you're here this morning and you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ to save your soul, then do it right here this morning. You're turning to God in faith. The Bible says, for by grace you are saved through faith. You're saying, Lord, I believe what the Bible says, and I'm trusting in Jesus Christ to save me. Do that right here where you sit. Seal the deal, so to speak, between you and God. Let this transaction take place. Let God take your sin away and declare you righteous. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you, Father, we are overwhelmed with the reality of just how much you love us. You knew us before we were ever born. Father, you called us by name. And Lord, you have given to each one of us a responsibility. That regardless of our vocation, our abilities, our personality, our heart, regardless of any of these, We are to declare you to a world that doesn't know you. And Father, in the simplest of terms, this can be done. the simplest of ways, where it's reaching out and feeding the poor or visiting those in prison or just loving on somebody. Father, we are proclaiming who you are. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that each one of us would see that. And that each one of us would seek your spirit to guide us and direct us and open up the doors that we might be the called out people, the separated life that you've called us to. That we might live that, Father, and be that people. Father, change us. That we no longer are selfish, self-centered, worried about our own little world. But that, Father, we might look beyond that and be used of you. In Jesus' name we pray.